All right, well, hey, open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hosea. What was that? Sure. <laughs> sure. Uh, the book of Hosea, and if you uh, don't have an, a, a, a phone in your hand, uh, if you go to the middle of your Bible, uh, find Ezekiel, hang a right, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. So uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. And we're going to start in chapter 5, verse 15. Sit tight, we're going to read a chunk of verses together and then uh, see how this matters to us um, in our real lives. So here we are, Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. This is God's word. Listen. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like a, the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood, as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven, they approached their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Syria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. 
they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, there is much uh, enthusiasm and uh, unrest in our country right now as a result of the election uh, last week, the presidential election, and we're off to a new direction, which is in many ways a journey into the unknown. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's quite a different time. It's quite a different kind of election. Uh, it's, kind of, it's a different uh, crossroads uh, that we find ourselves in. And I want you to know that today's message is not a political commentary on America and our election. Um, nor is it a spiritual safe zone uh, where you can come and lament. Um, It's not that at all. Um, But I will at least try to remain faithful to the Bible text and make a commentary on the status of the world, okay? So this isn't about the presidential election. America is not Israel. America is not God's chosen people, so don't make that that confusion. Um, But this does apply to the status of the world. And here's the status of the world, ladies and gentlemen. The status of the world uh, is humanity does not have the ability to better itself. You get that? Humanity does not have the ability to better itself. Now, to be clear, ladies and gentlemen, it is good to do good. It's good to do good. It's good to help people. It's good to care about our our earth. It's good to be caretakers of all that God has entrusted us with. It is true. Um, I don't mean to say that working for better conditions or better systems or better treatment of people or better oversight or better caretaking of citizens and all that stuff isn't something good. It is good to do good. We ought to participate in doing good. But friends, um, we, we should celebrate any good we see. But we don't have the power to make the world good. We don't. And I see, I think that's part of the lamenting that you see going on is people think, oh, we're almost there. We almost fixed the world. We almost fixed it when we all come together, when we, we almost are fixing the world. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not a biblical idea. That's where some of the heartache comes from, is that that we don't have the ability to fix the world. We don't have the ability to make the world better. Um, We are accountable to a perfect and holy creator. He created the world. Um, He put us in it. It was sinless. We were sinless, but sin entered the picture, and now everything's changed. It's a fallen world. The country's run by sinners. The church is run by sinners, redeemed, but sinners nonetheless, and so this is not some kind of topical item up for discussion that humanity uh, is or isn't, doesn't, or does or doesn't have the, the ability to help itself. It doesn't. If you believe this book, then, then you believe that the world has fallen and that we don't have resources to make ourselves better, to, to reconcile ourselves to God, to reconcile ourselves to one another, or to reconcile ourselves even within our own selves. I mean, if you've ever felt entanglement in your heart, You've ever been disappointed in yourself? You've ever said, I'm gonna make these changes and then you don't make these changes? Why? You're not, you're not at peace within your own heart. Why do your kids fight? They're not at peace with one another. Why do you and your spouse, the person that you pledge to love more than anyone else, to put before you in all things, why do you fight with your spouse? 
Because there's, you can't manufacture peace. Why is there enmity between humans and God? Because of sin that separates. Um, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, think about that, that verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You get where the term fallen comes from? It's a fallen world. We've fallen short. Well, the idea, the idea there in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the, world, of the glory of God doesn't mean, oh, I blew it this time, but I'll get it right next time, God. I blew it this time, but you'll like me next time, God. Oh, I'll try again. Maybe I'll get it right this time. And you'll go, that's not the biblical idea, ladies and gentlemen. That's not the biblical reality. That we've fallen short of the glory of God means we missed the target, chance over. We've fallen short. We blew it. There's no like little second chance. We need a savior. That's why Jesus was sent into the world. It's not that we claw our way to the finish line. Uh, The game is over. We've lost. And to be less than perfectly righteous is to be fallen. Um, You know, Ephesians 2 says this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Hey, friends, you ever been near a dead person? I have. Haven't you? You ever been by a dead body? You know what that looks like. Be it a person, a pet, a bird that fell out of a nest. You know what dead looks like. Dead is dead. The Bible is not confused when it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It goes on to say in that same passage in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You see the way the Bible talks about it. Dead, what did you need? What did Jesus provide? Life, life, death. That's the scenario. That's the scenario. That's the the state of the world. It is fallen dead in trespasses and sins. It's a cosmic concern. And so humanity does not have the idea to better itself. Uh, But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's great comfort and a security that lasts forever. So let's look at our first of three points. Um, And uh, this is a quite, quite a quite a passage to divide and conquer. So here's how I've done it. The first one is realistic representation. Look at verse uh, seven of um, chapter six of Hosea. We're going to look at lots of things in this big chunk of verses. I know it seems mysterious, but I think it'll make sense in a short time. Verse seven of chapter six. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, I skip ahead like that because um, Hosea is an unusual prophet, all right? You've got the major prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on. Um, Hosea um, is an unusual, unusual prophet. Um, one of the reasons he's unusual is that he is uh, poetic. Uh, you know that there were no printing presses back then, Right? And that there was a scribal transfer and so on. But uh, for most of the time when the word of the Lord was given to a prophet, it was given by speaking it. And I know that's hard for us to remember because we can't even remember a phone number anymore because it's, everything's in our phone. We don't, we don't really memorize anything anymore. Okay? But uh, when the prophetic word was given, oral transmission was the norm. People memorized the prophets. Hosea is unusual because he's poetic 
And it almost, he almost writes like an author more than, more than a, an, an orator. He almost writes more, he writes like a poet. And so he uses lots of um, metaphors and uh, some, some word puns and so on. Um, but um, so there's no more clear, um, powerful, convicting word picture than, than this, ladies and gentlemen. Like Adam, they, Israel, the people, and by the way, Israel is, um, is, um, is a representative sample of all of humanity in this, okay? So when you read this and you read about the faithlessness of Israel, Ephraim, by the way, Ephraim is another word that, that, uh, that represents Israel. When you read about Ephraim and Israel and Judah's fall and their faithlessness, it, that, that's a commentary on the human situation, friends, all right? And, and what Hosea says is, like Adam, they, we, transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with God. Um, now, friends, I, um, you know, Hosea is a, like I say, a, a, an interesting book. And um, I, I bet that uh, many Christians have never read any of it. And I also bet that many Christians can't even find it unless they've got a, a search feature somewhere. I mean, it's just, a, it's hard to find. It's, it's really an underpreached book. You rarely hear a, a sermon preached from the book of Hosea. Um, and so, uh, without turning, what do you think the very first word of the Lord to Hosea is? The very first thing that, you know, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Hosea, he's called, he's summoned. The very first word that God says to Hosea, do you know what it is? Anybody? Let's look at it together. Go to chapter one, verse two. God is uh, painting a dramatic word picture, okay? So look at chapter one, verse two. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, here's the first thing God tells Hosea. First thing he says, go, take to yourself a wife who's a prostitute and have children with that prostitute. For the land commits great prostitution by forsaking the Lord. Now that's quite a picture, isn't it? That, that does, that does, that, you can just feel the grief in God's heart. And he assigns Hosea this, this dastardly thing. It goes on in verse four. The Lord said to him, uh, oh yeah, so what happens is he, take, he takes himself a wife named Gomer and she conceives, bears him a son. The Lord says to him in verse four, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Jezreel, if you remember from, from, um, First Kings, Jezreel's in Judah. You remember um, um, Ahab and Jezebel? And uh, Ahab's the king, and there's a, there's a vineyard next door, Naboth's vineyard, and they, they cook up his plan, and they end up killing the guy and stealing his stuff. And, and uh, remember, Jezebel gets thrown out the window, gets eaten by dogs, and so on. Anyway, it's this place of uh, injustice. It's this place of blood, and uh, it's this place of faithlessness. And, and God says, I want you to name your firstborn kid Jezreel. Bad stuff happened in Jezreel. And uh, okay, so they do. And, um, and uh, in verse six, uh, she conceives again and bears a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. That's what I want you to name her. No mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Look at verse eight. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore Hosea a son. 
And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. That's what you name him. Not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And of course, uh, there's this, this glimmer of hope. Yet, verse 10, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. It's, and you go, whoa, 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 whoa. It sounds like, it sounds like God's going to keep his promise. Wow. Uh, he's judging as he promised he would if they disobeyed, but he's going to keep his covenantal promise. Wow. Um, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Wow. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel should be gathered together. They shall appoint for themselves one head. That speaks of the ultimate time when all things are set aright, when Christ returns. And they shall go up from there for great shall be the day, uh, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Wow. Redemption is built in there. But you see God's judgment, he's going to hold to his promise. But you see that the situation is quite dire. That the morality of the people of God has, has faded away. They've chased after other gods. They're not steadfast in their love. Uh, rather, they've, uh, they've gone a-whoring. I mean, whoredom is all over this book. Whoredom. Well, application for your life. Um, if the lack of faithlessness in Israel is seen in God's eyes as harlotry. What do you think God sees when he looks at sin? How does he view any sin against him, especially ours, yours, mine? Don't think God takes sin lightly. Don't, take God, don't think that God looks at us looking at the world, failing to square it up with the scriptures, and that God looks on that with kindness. He doesn't. He looks at it as harlotry, just like an, a faithless love. Um, you know, he says, what shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Uh, one commentator said that God's questions capture his pain. So make, make no mistake, friends, uh, that the harlot in this equation is the sinner. The harlot is you. The harlot is me. Well, you know, um, look at verse two of chapter six. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on and know the Lord. His going out is sure. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Is that not some allusion, ladies and gentlemen, to the resurrected savior? So in God's judgment, he's still moving savingly, even in this hard period of history. Look at, look at verse 10 um, of chapter 6. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel's defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. So judgment, grace, brimming at the same time, God controlling history. Friends, I'm telling you, that's the message of the gospel, that the world is fallen that humanity does not have the ability to better itself. You don't have the ability to better yourself. You don't have the ability to say, hey, God, did my best. Hope you like it. Guess what? He doesn't like it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not fall short with another chance to get the trophy, but fall short like you missed it chance over. What you need is a rescuer. What you need is a savior. What you need, you see bubbling to the surface of this judgment is this hint of redemption, this hint of God bringing a deliverer in who will save us. 
That's the message of the gospel. Not that Christ was a good example, which he was. Not that Christ was a good teacher, which he was. But Christ, the son of God, the very righteousness of God, the very stuff of God, the essence of God, the attributes of God, sets his glory aside, comes to this earth, lives the perfect human life, and then takes the punishment for you. He's the only one who could ever do it. The only human who could ever do it. Had to be human, had to be God. He's the only one who could ever do it. That's the rescuer in whom we put our saving trust. All right, second point. And we're gonna have to jump around a little bit with this, but uh, we'll, we'll stick to the text. Precise prosecution. Uh, look at um, chapter four, verse one. Um, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Here it is. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Um, that, that, that's, a, that's a problem, ladies and gentlemen. Um, what shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? Um, here, here's... here's um, uh, oh, yeah, hey, let me, let me read this to you. Uh, this is Psalm 93. He comes to the earth to judge. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in, faithful, in faithfulness. In other words, truth. He'll judge in truth, righteousness and truth. That's the way God judges. Not some capricious judge who just sits up there going, oh, ha, ha, I like this, I don't like this, I think this is cute, I think I'll sweep this under the rug. No, he judges with forensic precision. Precise, what did I say? Prosecution. Precise prosecution. He judges uh, staring at the thoughts and intents of, of the heart. He sees under every stone. That's the way God judges. Now, um, look, at, look at verse four. Um, what shall I do with you? What shall I do with you? Your love is like a morning cloud or a morning mist you might have, like the dew that goes away early. And you, that, that's a word picture, isn't it? It's, it's, it's highly stylized. It's poetic. You know what a morning mist is like where uh, there's, there's a morning dew, uh, but, uh, you know, you ever tried to grow oregano out in your yard? You know, the chives will hang on. The basil will do okay in the shade, but oregano, I mean, as soon as that Memphis heat hits it, if you haven't watered it for a couple of days, I mean, it just dries up. That's what, that's what this is saying. Hey, your love is like a, a verdant mist on, a, on the grasses, but man, the heat hits it and away it goes. Gone, gone, dry, dry, dry. That's what God is saying. Now, that would be a pain to God, wouldn't it? Um, have, your, have your children ever caused you that kind of a pain? You know, where they, oh, daddy, I need, you're like, okay, I'll get my wallet. <laughs> you know, she's 14, what does she want? Money. Is that, do you like that? I mean, you sort of do. It's kind of, but, but, you know, a love that is fickle, a love that only wants something, love that taps you on the shoulder just to get, a love that's fleeting. Do you like that? You know, I think about, uh, speaking of children, when I was at Western Illinois University, it was parent day. I, I hate this memory. I'm embarrassed by this memory. It was parent day, and my parents came to visit me on parent day at Western Illinois, and uh, I took them to a party. And guess what I did? I got separated from them and forgot they were visiting. <laughs> and was partying with my friends 
And uh, a few hours later, I was like, oh, my parents are here. And they had driven back to the hotel, having lost me. Is that horrible? Horrible. Oh. And, you know, I, I look at them and I'm like, they were like over 10 years younger than I am right now. And I'm like, those poor young pups. I mean, my poor young parents wandering around going, our goofed up son. That, that, that was my love. That was my horrible, crappy, crummy love. Gone like the mist, taking and taking. You know, in verse five, it says, um, oh, well, where is that? Uh, I've hewn them. Yeah, yeah, verse five. I've hewn them by the prophets. That, that's an interesting thing. I, again, it's poetic language. What, he, what is he saying? I've hewn them like the prophets. It's kind of like I've, I've cut them. I've shown them to be what they are. It's kind of like I've chipped away everything uh, that isn't their essence, and here's their essence. I've cut them away. I've hewn them by the prophets, and I, I've exposed them. And notice how God does this, too. He says, um, uh, I have slain them, verse 5, the second part of it, I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And that's how God does things, ladies and gentlemen. He spoke the world into existence. What God speaks is who God is. Jesus is the living word, Right? When Christ comes again, um, it says in Revelation nineteen fifteen, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Well, what does God want from you, friends? What does God want? What's his heart's desire? Well, his heart's desire is this in verse six. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I desire steadfast love. Um, in fact, now let me just get there real fast. Um, yeah, you don't have to get there, but I'm already here. This is in Isaiah um, uh, 1, verse 11. What, is, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? What do I care about all your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams. I've had enough of the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you to trample my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination and so on. Your moons, your festivals, I don't, even, I don't even want them. Why? God told him to do all that stuff. Why is he sick of them? You know why? Because it's all just going through motions. Their hearts are far from him. That's not what God desires. God desires steadfast love, not merely sacrifice. He doesn't want you to go through religious routines. He doesn't want you to come and punch the clock. He doesn't want you to brag to your friends that you went to church. He wants a steadfast heart. He wants a heart that's after him, that shows up in obedient love. And you know, it's interesting when God says, I desire uh, mercy, not sacrifice. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. You know who quotes that twice in Matthew? Jesus. Jesus cites God's delight. Well, what else are we compared to? Um, Chapter 7, verse 7. Um, all of them are hot as an oven. There's another word picture for you. Hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. A too hot oven. You ever put anything in a too hot oven? You ever burnt the turkey? You ever pulled something out and you go, oh no, it's smoldering? That, that's, that's the word picture. D- destroyers. Uh, destroyers of things, a too hot oven. How about uh, verse eight? Ephraim uh, mixes himself with peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Um, You know, there's always a hot spot in the oven, isn't there? 
ladies. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, from the oven at home, and let me tell you, in a commercial kitchen, in this convection oven right here, I mean, you put a giant sheet pan in there, you better uh, get it out, flip the whole thing around, and slide it back in again because this back left corner cooks faster than anywhere else. A, 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 an oven that doesn't do quite right. Um, Ephraim is a cake not turned. It's a cake that's burnt on one side and doughy on the other, and what good is it? No good. Um, that, that's what sin does in our relationship to God. Um, how about this? Um, yeah, verse 9. Uh, strangers devour his strength. He knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. That's a reference to dementia. You know, old age has come upon him. He doesn't even know it. He thinks he's a young man, and he thinks he's got all these faculties, and he doesn't, and it, it comes on him. He knows it not. He doesn't even know it. That's what sin does. It blinds. How about verse 11? Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. You ever seen a freaked out bird? You ever had a bird in your house? They're freaking out, aren't they? Freaking out. That's what this is saying. Sinners are freaking out. How about verse 11? Uh, oh, yeah, we're still on verse 11. So, oh, oh, yeah, oh, uh, hey, I got an illustration for you, too. Um, there was a guy in our college ministry speaking about freaking out and flitting about, about being flighty. Um, there was a guy in our college ministry years and years ago, good-looking guy, um, cool dude, and um, he just he couldn't make a commitment. Couldn't make a commitment to a girl, couldn't make a commitment to a person, couldn't make a commitment for a lunch appointment, couldn't make a commitment to, to be in or out of a Bible study. And I mean, it was, it was really just, I thought, this is going to trouble this guy for a long time. So I took him out to lunch at Chili's. And I sat across the table with him at Chili's and we were huddled over the table. And I said, what his name was? I said, eh. I said, let me tell you what I know. You are flighty. You can't commit. I mean, you just f- go from place to place to place. You're like a freaked out bird. I didn't say that, but that's the point. You're, you're flighty. Um, and I mean, he was, he just, ooh, who talks like that? I talk like that. You're flighty, man. You're not healthy. No one can count on you. You can't commit to anything. You're never going to please a woman. You're never going to be a good husband. You're going to be a horrible husband. Well, anyway, you know, he's, that's what a meanie. You know what? A dozen years later, he's like, dude, thank you. (laughs) That was awesome. And guess what? He's a family man. He's a responsible guy. He's got a bunch of kids, and he's doing. I'm not saying that that was that was the, the like the like the catalyst for anything, but I am saying that years later he thanked me for it because it was a true accusation. How about this, ladies and gentlemen? Verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. You know, they don't cry to me from the heart. They wail on their beds. Oh, they're crying. They're even wailing on their beds. (laughs) They're not crying out to me. Hey, by the way, um, some of this stuff on the news is is mind-blowing. I was talking to our piano player uh, just uh, right before, about three minutes before the service started. Oh, actually... It was during the prayer. Dr. Young just prayed, and I went over, and, and we, I finished the sentence we were talking about. I said, yeah, the issue is, all to say, have you heard on this one college campus that they had a primal scream? Did you hear about that? A primal scream? All right, meet in the center of campus, 
So all these students get together in the center campus and they have a primal scream. You know what that is? Ah! <coughs> Excuse me. That's not good for my vocal cords. But they just they get in a big circle and they just scream at the top of their lungs. Ladies and gentlemen, you're officially out of ideas at that point. I mean, there's, you, you've hit the... You've hit the bottom. You know, I tweeted this uh, this week, too. I don't mean to stray too far. I tweeted this. that uh, I, I, I wrote, life tip. Here's a life tip. Whoever is yelling and breaking things is probably an unimaginative idiot. Because when you're yelling and breaking things, you're, you're out of ideas, man. All, that's all, if all you're doing is screaming and smashing, that's at the bottom, man. In fact, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I, I'm more upset... I'm less upset about a lack of righteousness like destroying property than I am about the lack of creativity. Uh, it's just so unimaginative. All to say, friends, there's a difference between going, ah, and crying out deep within the heart. You know, that was the problem in the whole cycle of the judges. You know, you'll, you'll hear people say, oh, well, yes, there's a cycle of the judges. When people preach through judges, they'll say, oh, the people, you know, they fell into rebellion. And then, uh, oh, uh, later on, there was a uh, yeah, rebellion. Then there was judgment. Then there was remorse. And uh, then there was a, um, uh, uh, repentance. Well, that, there wasn't repentance. There wasn't real remorse. God could, God could take their agony no more. They could take their sorrow no more. He just intervened in grace. But it's not like they didn't cycle back around again. That, that's the issue, is that um, they, weren't, they weren't coming from their hearts. All right, one other thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, here's a good quote for you. We, we never arrive at a place of rest because we never rest in the right place. It's pretty good, isn't it? Witty. Um, how about this one? There's one more word picture here for you. That's in verse 16. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. So right when the bear is running towards you and you pull out the bow and the arrow and you pull it back. A treacherous bow. Boing. That thing doesn't work. It's not accurate. It's a treacherous bow. It's a gun that jams. It's a bad weapon. You think it's going to save you. You pull it out. You hope it's going to give you protection, but it's faulty. That's our righteousness, ladies and gentlemen. That, that's the problem with sin. Uh, it dulls as to what is the spiritual reality. In a word, sin blinds. That's what all these word pictures are showing us, is that it's displeasing to God, it grieves God's heart, and it shows us that our efforts are faulty, 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 faulty. That's the word picture. All right, last point, and with this we will bring it home. Everlasting epilogue. Now, um, there's this really... Uh, this really, really sad story. You don't have to turn, but uh, in, in the book of Joshua, um, you remember Achan, this guy named Achan, and he see, steals some stuff, and basically he sins, and, um, and God holds his sin um, against the people of Israel. And uh, this really, really sad thing happens uh, to, to Achan at this place called the Valley of Acre. Joshua takes all Israel. They take Achan, they take silver, they take his sons and daughters, his oxen, his donkey, his sheep, the tent, all that they had, and they brought them to the valley of Acre. And they stoned them because they've transgressed God's law 
and God is holding them accountable as representatives for the people. He is, they're not to have sin, idolatry in their midst. They steal. God holds them accountable, and this horrible thing happens in this place called the Valley of Acre. Um, the point was Israelite lack of fidelity. That's the point of, of Hosea's writings, is Israelite lack of fidelity. And, of course, they're an example for all of us. Well, if you would look at our, our book of Hosea here, turn to chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. What about that, ladies and gentlemen? God taking the infidelity of his people. God taking the grief of his heart. God taking a love that vanishes like the mist and is like a treacherous weapon, a flighting, flighty silly bird, a, a, a too hot oven, an uneven heat that burns and leaves uncooked. Just the deficiencies of his people. And yet God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring her to the wilderness. I'm going to speak tenderly to her, this harlot, this, this, this horror. And I'm going to make the valley of Acre a door of hope. All right, let's look at one more thing together. And with this, we'll close in prayer. Chapter 2, uh, verse 16, let's c- keep reading on. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. This one who was a, a, a harlot will say, my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Um, skip on down to verse uh, 18. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things on the ground. Sounds very much like an address of the curse, doesn't it? And I will abolish the bow, the sword, war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Betroth, betroth, I will do that to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. God's going to do it. I'm going to do it in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now listen, verse 21. In that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. So there's the first kid, Jezreel, that illustration. I will sow her for myself in the land. Jezreel, God sows. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That is the message of the cross. Righteous Father, uh, we thank you for your word that it is beyond cultures, beyond time, Uh, that it is a way for you to communicate divine and eternal things to we who are mortal. Um, Help us understand more deeply what you're like, Lord, what you love, um, the great chasm that is fixed between sinner and a holy God and the way the cross is sufficient to um, fully uh, bridge that chasm, to fully bring us into fellowship with you, the living God, in righteousness and in truth. Uh, Thank you, O God, our Father. Lord Jesus, thank you, our friend, our husband, our brother, our Lord, our Savior. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We come only in the name of Jesus who was provided. Amen.
Thanks, everybody.